So, hey, everybody, we're back after a hiatus of about two months. Um, I needed it to finish up or at least work on some projects that um, I want to finish, one of which is a documentary called Teddy Goes to the USSR. At this moment, the release date will probably be somewhere late March, so you'll be hearing about that if you're a regular listener of this podcast. Um, And I should remind you all that, um, you know, Margaret and Rusana, who I'm who are both here with me, uh, are wonderful additions to the podcast. Uh, Rusana started as an intern with support from ACES. Uh, Margaret came on just because, I don't know, why'd you you come on again, Margaret? Because I love it. I'm so interested in the material. But I'm so grateful for everyone uh, supporting the podcast because now I can tell my parents that it's worth it, that I have like a real job. (laughs) I mean... You know, that it's like uh, the investment is is appreciated, at least. Because of that, like Margaret wasn't getting any money in the beginning and Rusano was getting money from ACES and that money has run out. And but both of them, I think, thankfully, decided to stay on as volunteers on the podcast. I mean, I really, you know, need the help. And and then I was kind of feeling guilty because I don't want to feel like I'm exploiting their labor. So I did this... um, fundraising pitch a few about a month or so ago and the response was really great and one of the things i wanted to do with this extra money is to give margaret and rusana you know something it's not a lot it's a couple hundred bucks a month but at least it's something at least for my conscious and i should state though she's not using it today i was able to buy rusana some equipment uh, to make her sound better so that's also a plus um, and the way it works now is that half of the money that's coming in the Patreon, I'm going to split it between them. So if you want to help, you know, give appreciation for to Rusana and Margaret, please consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Um, if you're not a patron, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog and join the table of ranks or go to the srbpodcast.org website and do it there. And if you are a patron and you'd like to help out more, please take some time and increase your contribute your monthly contribution. Um, and we really appreciate it. And as I told Margaret and Rusana, uh, the more money that comes in, the more money they'll get. So this kind of a sharing thing. So uh, Rusana, you, do you want to say anything? Yeah, thank you so much, guys, for your support. Um, we both really appreciate it. At least for me, it helps uh, pay my bills, so that's cool. Uh, And yeah, yesterday I got this amazing equipment that Sean shipped to me while I'm I'm in the U.S. right now. So we used the opportunity to ship it to me in San Francisco, and I'm taking it to Russia tomorrow. Unfortunately, didn't have the time to set it up, but yeah, next week you'll uh, hear the difference. Вечерком с милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Well, hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. Um, welcome back. And as you know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center of Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, 
who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25 and more uh, to help support the podcast. And once again, if you'd like to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that patron button and join the table of ranks. Some of you might know that every semester at the University of Pittsburgh, I have to do a thematic series where I invite people on and do live interviews, and then I edit, we edit them and put them out as podcasts. So today's interview is the first interview I recorded for Pitt's uh, spring series, Openness, Acceleration, Restructuring, the Soviet 1980s. And I decided to do this series for a couple of reasons. First is last semester I did the 1970s, so in some ways it just easily follows on. And second, you know, it is the 30th anniversary, or it was the 30th anniversary, of the collapse of the Soviet system. Um, and perhaps now, after 30 years, it's a good way to think about and reevaluate what that period was and what are some of its legacies. So, um, Rusana, would you like to introduce our guest? Sure. Tom Jones is assistant professor at the Institute of Political Studies of the Polish Academy of Sciences. He holds a PhD from the KU Leuven in Belgium, and as a postdoctoral researcher, he has held fellowships in Poland, Austria, Hungary, Finland, Germany, Bulgaria, and Italy. He's the author of Student Politics in Communist Poland, Generations of Consent and Dissent, published by Roman and Littlefield in 2015. Here's Tom Jones. So you, you're, you're engaging in this fairly new project. I think you've been working on it for a couple of years now, uh, looking at the historical long durée of Poland's so-called illiberal turn that has occurred in the last decade or so. I'd like to start by just having you talk about the project in general and, and what inspired you to delve into this hot button issue. Thanks for this question and sort of a broader thing and, and to, to clarify so that there, there's one big project uh, that I'm working on, which is becoming a kind of history in the Polish left um, post-1968, which is one part of this whole question. And then there were some sub-projects that... Uh, also touched upon this bigger problem of um, illiberalism. Now, uh, let me maybe just start first of all where where the idea I mean came from. It was we have to go back uh, for now probably like some fifteen years, even a bit more, mid two thousand. So I, I was doing my PhD, which uh, was related to to student politics in in communist Poland. I was doing a lot of oral history, but it was also an interesting contemporary political time because Poland had just joined the European Union. Um, its political constellation had been shaken up like the year before. The, the center left had uh, collapsed a few years before the previous sort of post-Solidarność, post-Solidarity opposition block also collapsed. And um, it was a kind of birth of the political partyscape that we still see today, which is actually also interesting that nearly two decades on, we are still dealing with the same more or less political players. Now, one of the interesting things about doing interviews in that time was that I was actually meeting quite a lot of people who were active in politics at that time. And it turns out they all started sort of their political activity um, as, as students, you know, they got politicized at university and 
that kind of um, turned into a later sort of a career of political activism, media activism. But these were people very much engaged. And one of the things that was interesting is, of course, you know, we all know that PhDs take a long time. So this this was a sort of two year moment where people were fearing that Poland was going in the wrong direction. And let's say the the liberals or what who were coined then the liberals won again in 2007 and seemed to go away. And I was like, well, you know, this doesn't add up with what all these people were telling me. I mean, they're in it for the long run. So um, sooner or later, these people are going to win an election and, and we will see what happens there. But what was more interesting for me is that I saw a whole kind of historical aspect to it. So these people's views, these people's political credo was very much formed. Um, I'm talking about the people on the right, the so-called liberals as we were, or the populists that we would call them. Their career was very much formed in, in, in the 1980s in their, uh, what I would say, radical student activism. But just to clarify, radical does not mean left in that context, just means radical. So uh, they were they were Catholics, nationalists, um, and the, there were liberals there, they're conservatives, but it was very much a more what we would call a right-wing kind of orientation. A lot of projects, and I, and I get the sense that this project is, comes also out of a sense of dissatisfaction, a dissatisfaction with current interpretations, dissatisfaction with the scholarship thus far. Um, how do scholars tend to interpret the 1980s in Poland? Well, I'd say there is a kind of mainstream, mainstream is a bad word. There's a sort of consensus, of course, about the broad line. So the 1980s in Poland, and, and most people will know this, this is the kind of prelude to, you know, the collapse, the implosion, the demise of communism, and then the Soviet Union, as you mentioned earlier. So it starts this decade with uh, the rise of Solidarność, Solidarity, the first free trade union um, in, in the Soviet bloc. This is a massive social movement. It encompasses one in three uh, people in the country, 10 million strong. Uh, this is a period of you know, 16 months, and then a military coup takes place. It gets struck down. Part of uh, Solidarność is, for all intents and purposes, the movement as it existed in, in 1881 is destroyed. Part of it goes underground. Most of the leaders are, or practically all the leaders, are incarcerated. Thousands are incarcerated. It, it, it was a, a very, very significant and well-planned operation as far as military coups are. This also um, reverberated throughout the bloc. As you may know, early 80s, the Soviets start cracking down on dissent. I mean, this is kind of introduced by this crackdown in Poland. Uh, but still the decade, I mean, one of the big problems was the economy. The economy is not improving that well. Um, the international climate is changing. And by the end of the decade, you know, you see a reemergence of solidarity. It challenges the regime. This time the regime's reaction is different. They have negotiations because as we know, the general climate had changed. The Gorbachev was already in the Soviet Union. So uh, the Polish events very much, and that's what would be the, you know, the kind of consensus uh, interpretation is precipitated and introduced the changes we see at uh, the end of the 1980s. So as the scholarship tends to, it's kind of a almost teleological rising crescendo that culminates in this moment of, of 1989. How do you see that that crescendo different or that interpretation different? Well, you know, as, as historians, we always, our, our sort of mission is to reinterpret the past as time goes on. And uh, well, one of the first things you see is that most of the, um, so the narratives or most of the accounts of 89 
uh, and still up till today, uh, were written by uh, contemporary observers. So uh, ironically, I mean, my generation of historians, so 10 years ago, like when we had the 20th anniversary, we were all kind of like, you know, PhD students, ABDs, finishing our doctorates. And in that 20th anniversary, some of us were active conferences and presenting sort of our work that kind of sort of started to challenge the mainstream view. Or basically, I mean, archives were not yet open in 89. So, you know, once the archives started opening up and we just passed 30 years, so in some cases, some archives have just barely started opening. So historians haven't really studied it. So there are a lot of new things that we are learning and we still should learn about the 1980s and of course reinterpret them from today's perspective. So one of my, uh, let's say, problems or let's say it's a few problems, it's, it's not necessarily the main framing because Poland in the 80s, as I said, there is a consensus about that. But it's rather, I mean, it's in the detail. So first of all, it's the issue of the left. Reform communism or the reformist wing in, in, in the Communist Party and the generational change that happened is very much an untold story. And these people were crucial to the peaceful and successful transition in 89. Uh, and the other aspect is that among, let's say, this giant, massive anti-communist opposition that Poland had, and that Poland was pretty much sort of the exception here, because other countries just didn't have an active opposition. There were just a few dissidents and so on. Um, that, you know, at the time, anti-communism seemed to be equated with liberalism. And I have a problem with that, because as I said, many of the people who came of age at that time now turn out to be today's kind of illiberal. So what happened? That That is, so these two questions, on the one hand, there is this, ignoring or still untold story of part of the communist establishment that engaged in transition. And on the other hand, there is this, oh, we need to kind of reassess what was in the, let's say, anti-communist or oppositional camp. Well, let's let's start to unpack some of that stuff. Um, first, I want you to talk about some of the, the beginnings of these political players in the 70s and in the 80s, um, you've you've written about this in your book on on student politics. But but talk about how they started their careers and where did they fall? Some of them fall in the ideological spectrum of of the nineteen the late 70s and early 80s. The late 60s is a very important moment in Poland, um, and and in many ways, a lot of there's a lot of discussion in Poland that they say we're not part of this whole global 60s youth student constant contestation. I qualify that. I do see Poland as part of it, I think, as a very much an integral part of it. Um, we have a, a, a massive student revolt and we have a so-called workers revolt. Now, both youth categories actually were uh, present in, in both massive uh, protest movements in the 68th and, and 1970s. That's something I show in my book. But uh, what is crucial there is that you're dealing with the first generation of youth that was raised under the communist system. And this generation rejects it. This generation until then, I mean, the protests, they were referring to the constitution. They were still singing the international. So there was a still kind of general moderate acceptance of the system as long as the system could somehow deliver on some aspirations. Now, this ends mainly also because of the reaction of the regime, which is absolutely repressive. Uh, so there is a general turn away from Marxist in, in interpreted socialism um, at the, in the late 60s, early 70s, among part of the Polish uh, population, uh, especially the young population that, that knew no other system. Um, and then you have 
um, a change, a political change at the top. You get a new um, team leading the party in the state, and then they start this opening to the West, which is very crucial because on the one hand, this is seen as this kind of liberalization, but um, while a lot of Poles are going abroad and, and you know, having encounters with capitalism, uh, the group, or one of the groups that is fairly often forgotten about is actually young party activists who get much more uh, opportunities to go to the West. So uh, many of the people I'm now studying this history on the left, these are people who, for instance, have studied at leading U.S. universities where they studied like, you know, capitalist economics and all that. So uh, this was a very formative um, period for certain people to gain competences, to shape their worldview that would really come to fruition at the end of the 80s. And on the other hand, as I said, you have this turn away from social. This opened up the door because one of the typical things about the Polish opposition was that it was still a bit more ideological um, than in other countries. So, you, and you know, as, as you might know, Poland is a very Catholic country. So the, um, the influence of the church, which was then even bolstered at the end of the 70s with the election of a Polish pope in the Vatican, was, was massive. And, and this was a huge influence on, on a whole variety of nationalist and Catholic and conservative tendencies. I mean, there were, of course, moderate tendencies, even nearly left-leaning tendencies in Catholicism, but still this kind of conservative, what we would call right-wing nationalist pillar was there and was being formed in those years. So by the time you get the contestation of the 80s, much of that anti-communist opposition was not so liberal as we would understand it in the West. And when it comes to, let's say, liberal democracy, well, this is really something that gets introduced at the end of the 80s. So nobody was really thinking about neoliberalism. I mean, nobody imagined the fall of communism right in 1985. So nobody was thinking about liberal democracy. So we need to go back to that point where what, who were the people, how were they shaped in 89 and take it from there. So this, this easy story, because I think it's important to many of the contemporary observers, though they wrote, some of them were really good accounts. They didn't speak to a wide number of people. You know, they spoke to people who were who spoke some foreign language who were generally liberally inclined. So there is a certain bias to that story, which I'm hoping to kind of, you know, um, challenge and qualify a bit. So you have this, this 68 mass student uh, movement. There's a crisis amongst the leadership of the regime. You have uh, workers' oppositions. Um, but still at that point, until, until the major crackdown, it, the the imagine the political imagination is still within existing within the existing system, and sixty eight breaks that the the repression. If I'm understanding you correctly, so after that the emergence of say you know a, a reform left uh, a more you know nationalism uh, and other tenant political tendencies within the you know anti regime let's say um, or or a reform wing of the system are they. Is there a political imagination in the 80s within a context of just having a – because as you said, they, they didn't imagine the collapse of the communist system. So was, was the general imagination around a pluralism, a political pluralism of sorts within Poland or, or how would you characterize that in terms of their political vision? I, I wouldn't say that it was pluralism yet. I mean this really happens at in you know, in '89, when they have these these first free elections, and even then, the opposition goes to the elections mainly as you know a united uh, Solidarność bloc. And you know, as far as let's say the underground one political party was was that um, very nationalist party was was founded, but otherwise, it's only at the end of the '80s that you see some kind of 
new political formations or party formations trying to form towards pluralism. So um, this, this is not yet on the books. What is important to understand that even until 1980, I mean, the beginning of the 80s, if we look at sociology, I mean, sociological surveys, there was still this kind of, you know, imagine that the world is still moving towards some kind of socialism, but not necessarily the Soviet type. So we're, we're going gradually away from a kind of even a social democratic thing. And, you know, this is uh, in part um, the 80s in Poland is a part of a global story, right? I mean, the U.S., um, the Reagan, U UK, Thatcher. But what I mentioned, this religious turn, I mean, there's a global aspect to it. In late 70s, so you get a Polish pope elected in the Vatican. You have the Iranian Revolution. When the U.S. elects Reagan, I mean, he was very much um, showing, I mean, had a religious aspect to his politics as well. So uh, I think this is part also of a bigger story that is not just specifically Poland. Definitely. And we'll, we'll, we'll address that uh, towards the end of our conversation. Um, let's, let's have you unpack some terms. Um, the first one is, you know, you're, you're writing, you're critical of this equation of anti-communism with liberalism. So what role what is what does anti-communism mean in Poland in this period, and and how does that shape the politics of the time? Well, anti-communism in the first place, very simple, was anybody who opposed, you know, the regime. Um, given time, you would have certain variations in that, but this was very much a blanket term. If you look at the massive opposition um, in Poland, but also in other Eastern European countries. Uh, you would see people who are non-communist, non-Marxist, Leninist, social democrats. You would also see, also see um, far-right Nazi sympathizers in that opposition. So uh, as long as you have, you know, imagine the anti-communist opposition in the 80s in Poland as a protest movement. Well, you know, we know from present-day protests, this, this, these are huge groups that are not necessarily unified. These are people who have liberal views. These are people, but they have one unified goal that is to oppose the regime. Immediately after 89, when you have free elections, you start seeing these um, tendencies grow apart. And, and that's, you know, given two, three decades to sort of brew and germinate. Well, this is where we are, where we suddenly see, well, we have a, some kind of far-right movement or far-right extreme right party, a million people in Poland voting for basically what is practically a fascist party. Um, one of the leaders of that party was a, a known um, opposition activist, and he was actually a student activist who started in, in the mid-60s. So uh, there you go. Um, yeah. If I would uh, put it out broader, you know, it's also a bit of a global thing, you know, anti-communism. In the Soviet bloc, you had your anti-communist activist politicians, commentators uh, in the West. Uh, and, you know, after 89, they all start coming together in these same milieus. So uh, I would also say in some countries after 89, you know, we still have anti-communism. This is usually, you know, directed at the, either the post-communist, but more or less the general left, right? It becomes this kind of uh, catalyst for, for, for a kind of right-wing conservative, neoliberal, neoconservative, whatever um, uh, politics. So again, it's it's something that I think specifically in the 80s was linked to opposition, but after 89, this becomes more of this, you know, transnational, international phenomenon on the right. right. And how does anti-communism work in terms, because you're looking at the reform left, right? 
some Communist Party activists who are part of the reform wing. Um, where do how did they negotiate being you know basically social democrats, but also not you know being anti-communist, even if they're, it sounds like some of them are still working within the system. Again, this happened in the history of communist Poland. This happened in various waves. So, you know, in every big crisis in 56 de-Stalinization, you get a few people, uh, you know, leaving the party, becoming anti-communist later, or some of them kept leftist credentials, just not, you know, communist or Marxist inspired left. Um, it's happened in 68 as well. People in the 70s, the, the young people I'm talking well, you know, they they really started their careers and they kind of broke through mid-80s, uh, some of them late 80s, that their careers really take off and, and the transition opens a new opportunity. Now, they wouldn't describe themselves necessarily as anti-communist, but they see themselves as working within the system, pragmatic. They are not the kind of, and, and this is an important thing to understand, they are definitely not true believers in, in you know, Soviet-style socialism or Marxism-Leninism in the 1950s. So what is typical for Poland, the big rebellion in, in, you know, against Stalin, uh, this actually is fueled by true believers in Marxism and Leninism. But, you know, a variety of events, but one of them was, you know, Khrushchev's secret speech. Um, and this invigorated these people in, in rage. And they thought, well, you know, this, go, this system tends to go against our Marxist-Leninist ideals. And as Marxist-Leninists, we need to overthrow the system in a Marxist-Leninist way. So, you know, we found social movements and workers' movements, ally, intellectuals and, al and workers allied and challenged the regime. So uh, this is not the story of the 1970s. The story of the 1970s are people who, for instance, you know, they have the opportunity, they go to Sweden. They... Um, get introduced to the Nordic model. I mean, you you know in, in the U.S. also um, these references, you know, Bernie Sanders will be referring to the Nordic model with healthcare. So for them, it's this kind of third way thinking, this path between capitalism and Soviet-style communism and this idea that, you know, Europe is divided, but who knows? I mean, it might just come together. You know, we, uh, we're certainly not looking at a, a predetermined path and uh, that's what really kind of um, inspired those people. But they wouldn't describe themselves as anti-communist for that reason. You know, they were Communist Party members. Uh, here's a question from, from the audience. Um, in terms of the narrative of 1989, when do you think it will change or is it already changing? Will we have to wait until the people who created the narrative in the first place start dying off? Uh, or... Are various new left movements actively challenging this air, this narrative now? So it, it seems to me there are two questions. There is a question about scholarly interpretation, and then there's a question about within Polish society, if I may interpret it this way, Polish society, is there a challenge against that narrative as well? It's a good question, or good two questions. So the first part, the scholarly thing, is this is much slower. So uh, as I already mentioned before, the 10th anniversary kind of passed unnoticed because, you know, we were still in the transition period in those countries and it, it was really hard. These were really hard economic policies, lots of unemployment, all that. So there was not much to celebrate. Um, 20th anniversary was, interestingly enough, an opportunity for historians of my generation um, to, to start showcasing our work. But ironically, on the 30th anniversary, we kind of returned back to the old, kind of celebrating the old narrative with actually mainly the old, I mean, very few, uh, one or two really good books that appeared on around the 30th anniversary, I have to say, that give new perspectives, like, for instance, the global impact of 89 and 
and so on. But it, it was remarkable to see that actually on the 30th anniversary, we got back to this sort of standard narrative. And it was as if, you know, as if given that at the same time, we're seeing problems in Eastern Europe all over the place, you know, the backsliding and some countries where it just didn't really work out. Then, you know, the authoritarianism, you know, Putin's Russia and that. So, you know, it's, we, it, it felt a bit as if we needed to rekindle that moment of hope with the original narrative. Um, so it'll take time. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, that like, you know, historians of my generation and, and the next generations who are working with the archives, are, are work, I mean, we will be able to complicate the narrative, especially given, you know, that we also take into account the uh, ebb and flow of time and the ebb and flow of politics in the region. The second uh, aspect of this question is very interesting. It's been challenged from the get-go and, and not only by, I, I'd say, the new left. I mean, the left is a minor player countries like Poland, it's on the right that is being challenged. You know, it's this conspiracy thinking that it was, this was all a communist setup, you know, that it was the secret services, that they captured the economy. So, and these are narratives that have very much also been uh, one of the motive forces in fueling the, you know, the populism, the liberalism. So um, at the time, you also, I mean, around now, you of course have some new left critiques that usually go in the direction of, you know, putting the economic policies, the neoliberalism, uh, in Poland, it's very much uh, about, you know, the so-called Balcerowicz plan, but in other countries, I mean, it's not that pronounced, but I think there's there's a general tendency that that it's common for several countries that, I mean, this narrative is constantly being challenged for political expediency. I'm Joe Weisberg, creator of The Americans. I spent my whole life studying and thinking about the Soviet Union and Russia. And now I've been listening to the SRB podcast for about two years. And about 80% of what I know on that topic has come from SRB. So going back to kind of to unpacking some of these terms that we commonly use, the other one you, you're questioning, of course, is liberalism, which you say kind of emerges very late in the game as a, a thing. So what does it mean to be a liberal in the in you know in that in this period? If if you would if you would actually talk to most people, I mean actives from the time, they wouldn't be able to answer you. Main, I mean, liberal in the first place basically meant you know opposing. I mean, being in favor of the free market. Um, liberal in our let's say Western point of view, certainly not, because if you look at most countries, you know, uh, communist systems had pretty liberal. Um, uh, laws on abortion, in, not all, of course, but in Poland, this was it. They, this got screwed back very much. So, um, and these are supposedly the liberal liberals. Very often are conservatives, but it would still mainly be seen as an economic point of view. In the sense, you're for the free market. This, I mean, classic liberal, neoliberal, libertarian. That's what it's seen. Um, the actual, I mean, let's say liberals who were really uh, people who knew or were in favor of liberal democracy, this was a, uh, a minority um, among the opposition. And you just have to, I mean, take a country like Poland and you will see that, you know, Kaczynski was putting together the first, uh, you know, post-communist government coalition together. So these people have been around for the whole transition. I mean, you know, they, it was a potentiality that we would get on this path. So, um you know, it was history in the making. It wasn't the end of history just to, you know, make that obligatory uh, reference and, and, and critique of, you know, 
the end of history narrative. So would so would you say to some extent? I mean, I think this is this can be applied to Russia, which I know better, of course. Uh, the the times, the the euphoria, the even the utopianism of the time that you know communism, communist regimes are collapsing in Eastern Europe and 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 for the most part peacefully. Um, so did did the times lead to a certain misinterpretation of how politics was being played out on the ground in in real time? Do you think the exuberance of outside, you know, some of these observers who wrote these first accounts, do you think that they were in some way kind of creatures of their time and being captured in this almost utopian, euphoric moment? Absolutely, absolutely. I think I think this is. Um... It's also, I mean, it, it, you can feel this now when they're also older and writing their accounts. I mean, it's a generational kind of thing. I mean, it, it was, I mean, I remember those events, you know, it was, it was practically, they, they call it the Anus Mirabilis for that reason, right? It's practically unimaginable that, you know, the Berlin Wall comes down, but, you know, in it's such short succession, this whole Cold War division of Europe, then the Soviet system, it just comes crumbling down, like just out of nowhere. Um this is this is you know it, that magic of the moment. But you know, I've also worked on post eighty nine protest movements, post eighty nine revolutions. But let me just give a more historical uh, kind of analogy that might be more um, that might make my point stronger. So we take the French Revolution right? in seventeen eighty nine. So, but how would it be assessed in seventeen ninety two, seventeen ninety eight? 1805, 1815, 1830, I mean, 30 years after the French Revolution, uh, you know, questions could be asked about, you know, did we have some black sliding? Did the revolution work? Whatever. So uh, 30 years after 89 is not that long in historical time, is it? So I think I think that's that's kind of where I'm trying to look and come from with this long today. It's like, let's not panic too much. You know, it's kind of... Certain things have been there. We see the same people. We see the same ideas. I mean, something happens, you know, something's unexpected that might catalyze politics. But uh, historical time is still something that you should take into account. You know, these processes that are, are you know, going underway in the 1980s that resulted in the end of the, the communist regime in Poland, how did that shape the transition into the 1990s? Gave its particular Polishness, let's say, for lack of a better term. It 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 was crucial. I mean, uh, and just let me link up with the previous uh, question because you know the contemporaries, contemporary observers, but also experts. A lot of experts from the West came to the East to tell them how it should be done. But actually, using Eastern Europe as a big laboratory. I mean, yeah, for a lot of neoliberal econ e economists, I mean, Eastern Europe was suddenly like this amazing laboratory where they could test out things that they couldn't even do um, in the West. I mean, you know, uh, if you wonder why you don't have much anti-austerity politics after the financial crisis in 2008, Eastern Europe, because Eastern Europe knew austerity politics for, for two decades after 89, right? I mean, people, it doesn't trigger that protest anymore. Um, but, you know, the, if, if, if we look at how it was shaped, so you have certain external actors, which were crucial for 
various countries. So the European Union is one of them. You know, at the same time, the European Union is actually being created at the end of the 80s in Western Europe. And then suddenly the wall comes down and they start inviting these countries. Not all, as we know. And, and part of that is, is, is what we're dealing with problems now. We have NATO and NATO suddenly doesn't know what it, it is doing, right? I still remember the debates of the 90s. And it's just amazing that all these years after, here we are again. You know, it's, 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 we're having those same debates. Uh, we're having, I mean, debates about the course of the European Union or whatever. But, you know, first of all, I mean, there was, there was a demand for Western aid. People had this idea of an imagined West, which is, you know, it's, it's still hard to comprehend that you have a massive workers movement that demands capitalism. And then somehow they're, you know, big plants and the factories and, uh, companies where they're working out are getting privatized and they're getting laid off as a result of, let's say, their years-long uh, struggle for freedom, right? So that's that's one aspect of it. And that certainly shaped the 90s. And, and you know, I would say, again, looking back to a previous um, question, you know, when it comes to liberalism, what did liberalism mean? Liberalism very often meant joining the EU, joining NATO. Uh, now, this moment with at the beginning of my talk when I said when I came up with this, this so Poland and, and um, already a lot of countries of Eastern Europe had joined, just joined the European Union. Liberalism kind of ran out of steam then. That was a big meta narrative. We're going to return to Europe. We're going to join the EU, join NATO. Okay, now we join. What happens now? And suddenly, you know, you get all these kind of toxic and, 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 you know, uh, populist and nationalist politicians emerging. And, and you know, where is that consensus? But, you know, the goal was achieved. So suddenly, I mean, what kept people kind of content in the 90s was this idea that it will get better and that they'll join the EU. Once that happened, well, you know, suddenly nobody knew what would happen, right? And, and well, you know, that's that's where things turned, took a bit of a different turn. Here's another question from, from the audience. Could you elaborate a bit more on the role of the Catholic Church in Poland? My understanding is that it changed from an anti-communist rather than liberal pro-European force to an illiberal, largely anti-EU force. What were the reasons for this shift and what were the turning points? Uh, the church, the Catholic church was never um, liberal first, right? It's never been liberal. So it's a religion, it's rather conservative. Uh, it has some progressive tendencies. And it was also never particularly democratic. Um, the Vatican is a theocracy. I mean, still for all intents and purposes, and, and women don't have a right to vote. It's, it's run by a bunch of cardinals. I mean, it, so let's take it from there. So these structures are kind of, you know, um, present in, in Poland, um, but it was a massively powerful institution. It at times had a good modus vivendi with the regime, and at times challenged it, as it, of course, did in the 80s and when it gave its patronage. And you, of course, had many grassroots priests who were or, um, active in the opposition. Um, most of them were conservative. I mean, uh, the large part of the Catholic Church in Poland is a rural organization, by default conservative. Um, don't think about Western values, whatever. I mean, it is... And, this organization, of course, after 89, gains a lot of credit and power and influence. So one of the big things that you see is that they immediately move to press on the abortion issue, something that today is still a big problem, political problem in Poland. 
um, it's it's a it's an organization with also a lot of capital and possessions and land and whatever. So um, it has a lot of political influence. It gained political influence, and it was certainly not progressive. Now, of course, there was a pro-European wing. Uh, this helped. I mean, let's say the um, the church uh, played a crucial role in, in, in influencing public opinion in Poland to uh, accept the accession to the EU. Uh, in return for that, and this is one of the things that my research also gains into, actually it was a compromise force with the post-communist left, and the price for it was exactly a conservative abortion law. So they bought the support of the church by actually betraying core leftist values, because the 1990s in Poland, um, the economic transition was not a political cleavage. It was not a matter of political strife. So there was more or less a large consensus of where that had to go. So it was really about, you know, cult social cultural issues like abortion and uh, the left, which gained power in a, in a massive landslide, uh, cut a deal with the church, had started losing its support and actually it precipitated the collapse of the left, which was later accelerated with some corruption scandals. But this is a very crucial thing to understand about Poland is actually that the church did not play uh, certainly did not play a progressive role after 89. It played an, an important role in supporting the opposition before 89, but, uh, and, you know, as hierarchies go, more conservative elements made their careers after 89, so. I, I'm, I'm really fascinated by this uh, present day or in the last decade, maybe, right-wing critique in Poland of 1989. Can you expand on that? Uh, what is the right-wing critique? So, I mean, there are various variations of this that mainly, usually it comes down to, you know, there was a deal, uh, the communist secret services, but there was a deal between communists and liberals. This is where the liberals come in, like the anti-communists. But these liberals are then kind of defined as these were people who had some leftist or communist links in the past or their families. And, um, you know, the more to the right you go, the more kind of dark and, and conspiratorial and radical you get this kind of uh, narrative. So this has been there from the start and has been used for political expediency. Now, what is interesting in Poland is that, well, as I said a few times, mid 2000s, the left, which was actually the dominant political force, very successful. And uh, these reformers were absolutely talented politicians. Uh, with their end of the career, the left collapsed. So you get the kind of right-wing hegemony, a sort of two-party system, but two actually conservative parties. And the leader is one, yet also then these two parties come out of, you know, this collapsed solidarity block. And the leader of one in 2005 actually just coins, reframes Polish politics by suddenly saying you have, you know, Polska Solidarna and Polska Liberalna. And he coins one party as these are the liberals. These, again, as I said, these are actually conservatives free market conservatives, and a more right-wing conservative Catholic nationalists block. Um, so so this is, is this crucial moment that the left no longer becomes a player. Social democracy isn't a player, and you get a competition on the right. And part of the right is reframed by the more radical right as they are now the communists. So when you read like certain Polish discourse and right-wing news outlets and media, you're really wondering how people, so just imagine somebody like John McCain could have technically been framed even as a kind of, you know, sort of leftist, too liberal figure. Um, yeah, 
So, I, so the spectrum had moved has moved so far right that anyone dangling on the left wing of the right is dangling is, is part of that milieu. Wow, I see. Well, I mean, in in many respects, it doesn't sound that the political framing and process doesn't sound too different than what you find in a lot of places where the right is ascendant. That things have shifted so far to the right that even the center seems like you know. Like liberals from, you know, who knows where. <laughs> well, you know, we live in a globalized world, right? So many in the, the radical right in Poland, they, they would also look at, you know, radical far right and, and conservative U.S. media. So, you know, don't be surprised when, you know, they're referring rather to, to Fox News or, you know, the Polish president is having an interview. Uh, I think it was with Tucker Carlson. So, you know, these, these by now, these have become more global. I mean, the Trump era was absolutely... Uh, an illustration of that and, and how you could see how certain Eastern European governments immediately rallied. You know, you, the U.S. was a bit obsessed about this kind of Russia-gate narrative about Trump. But if you then see the Russophobe polls who were absolutely, you know, behind Trump and didn't congratulate Biden because this is, you know, they kind of subscribed to the steel um, narrative, uh, you know, so... If you if if you look at that, this this the kind of right wing movement is no longer something that is just national, right? I mean, you know, this series is is about the 1980s, and this question might be having you restate some of the things that you've already stated, but you know, you can pull them all together here. This series is about the 1980s and the final years of the communist states in Eastern Europe and in the course of the Soviet Union. How do you? You know, you said that you remember some of these events, at least in the 1990s. How do you reflect on this period in the history of, of Europe 30 years from you know now? It's, it's such a crucial period for Europe because, of course, it is a moment where Europe is coming together. And not just because of this kind of, you know, cliche, the return to Europe, whatever. But um, let's say for members of my generation, first, let me put it like through a personal, I mean, we were coming of age, late 80s, early 90s. We went to university in the 90s. We had the Yugoslav Wars. We had the Clinton and, you know, the narrative of the Cold War was gone. We had grunge, but everything was a bit sort of, you know, we didn't know where to go. I mean, you know, we remember these kind of events and, and you know, we remember when Yeltsin resigned for this and then 9-11 happened. So let's say these 90s. They're this kind of period where we didn't really know where we were going, but we were kind of having fun. There were these ideas like, you know, I mean, why did I study Eastern Europe? Because we were thinking, well, you know, it's the future. I mean, you know, there's a lot of things going to happen and whatever. I don't know if I, you know, if I'd be now in my 20s or 30s, if I would take the same decisions. I'm not sure of that. But, um, you know, it was definitely, and, and then another thing that was, of course, important is that you know, we were living um, in Europe, I mean, from the European perspective, and I think about this more now as, as a historian. So first of all, as I already mentioned, in the late 80s, the European Union, the European communities are becoming, the European economic communities become European community, European Union. Eastern Europe suddenly starts joining. That's on the map. So Europe is uniting. Um, but at the same time, we're kind of shaking off, you know, this geopolitical hegemony from, you know, the US and, and you know, let's say DC and Moscow, put it that way. Uh, we're still trying to do that, <laughs> and you see, you see in every major now, like with Ukraine, you see this come up, up again. That you know, let's say Germany and France are not <laughs> exactly because you know, I mean, Germany unites, right? I mean, this is this crucial event that that the collapse of the Berlin Wall unites Germany. This becomes the this this powerful economic motor. 
uh, of Europe, of the European Union that, I mean, Germany is absolutely becoming dominant. I mean, the French are even fine with that. The Brits left, so there's no problem there anymore. Uh, and now you see that, you know, when the US and Russia are trying to do and the Germans are like, well, you know, we want the Russian gas, we're, we don't want to send those, we don't want war in Europe again, um, for obvious reasons. Uh, you know, this this starts really uh, back then, and this is the story of the last 30 years that, I mean, we, we are for better or for worse, and it's not just this institutional story of the European, but Europe is coming together. Uh, European, yet you mentioned at the beginning, you know, I've lived in so many countries, well, I mean, this might be a bit acceptable for young people today. I mean, you know, Europe is a, a, a continent of mobility. People in, in somebody in, in the Czech Republic will go to Spain. Somebody in Poland will go to Greece. I mean, Europe is uniting from the bottom up in that way. And this is something that, you know, really, I would say it, it didn't start because it was happening already since, you know, the 60s and the 70s still, but it was a trickle. But the floodgates were open and, you know, it allowed... Europe to start coming together. So that would be my kind of you know very general uh, story. Hmm. It, it sounds like a. It sounds like a. At least looking at it from the bottom up, it it sounds like you have a pretty positive view of of the future of this. You know, Europe becoming a, a kind of general European identity with all of this mixture of people, m the mobility. Well, you know, I'm partially personally biased because of my own kind of biography here, but. Um, also, I mean, as 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 I mean, from a historical point of view, as I said, I mean, you know, whatever they comment on now that you know we got the backsliding, illiberalism, whatever, it'll pass. We might not be talking about this five years from now. I mean, and just as in '89, this kind of you know utopian hope, it's now the end of history. We're going to liberal democracy was you know a bit jumping the shark. So is today's kind of doom writing about it's all going down the drain. I mean, it, it, history and societies don't work that way. It's much more chaotic. It's much more dynamic. Um, we don't really know. And it depends on the country. I mean, in the US, your, your political elite is, came of age in the 1960s. So you're still kind of, you know, uh, in some European countries, we have political leaders who are uh, 10 years younger than me. So, you know, where will we be 50 years from now? Is it very hard question to ask, but certainly will be in a more united Europe in some way. Doesn't mean it has to be the EU, but in some way. I mean, Britain left the EU, but you still, I, you know, living in Bulgaria, uh, there are a lot of property owners from the UK here. So, you know, they haven't left Europe. What role, if any, uh, did the memory of World War II play in the 1980s and, and amongst particularly the, the anti-communist opposition? Did it have a role? Or is this something that developed really after? The memory of the world of the Second World War is just so important for Polish society, um, even until today. Um, and because I mean, it, the Polish lands are the main theaters also of the Holocaust. Of, I mean, this is where parts of Poland were occupied three times. You know, so it, it started there. Anybody with Polish roots, well, I mean, they let's say from my generation, their grandparents, whatever. I mean, they were formed by the by the war. Now, let's say for the opposition, it it was extremely important for the underground that that survived after martial law because they even you know they even referred to in symbols to the underground resistance of the Nazi occupation. So, um, with the anchor symbol that you had with the P and an anchor symbol of the Polish resistance, then they made it they extended the P into an S as you know 
the Solidarność Underground, that was one example. Uh, for the, the radical uh, student activists at the end of the 80s, I mean, their kind of myth was the Warsaw Uprising in 1944, where, you know, uh, the whole army rises up. In my opinion, as a historian, this was a mistake, but okay, you know, it's a, it's a fact that they rise up against the Nazi occupiers while the Soviet army is on the other bank of the river in Warsaw, does not intervene. Uh, the Nazis crush uh, the resistance, whatever, but this, uh, you know, Polish history is full of defeats. Defeats are the best myth makers. They don't, and that's one of the things, 89 is actually victory. That's why there's so many conspiracy theories about this. Is If it would have been a uprising that was smothered in blood, a lot of people have died, probably Polish society would have an easier way to deal with it because it's easier to create a historical myth about it. But this didn't happen. They, they were, people made a deal and a small group of people made a deal and there were elections. This is not so spectacular as a historical narrative, right? So, um, I mean, yeah, I'll leave it at that. What are some of your preliminary conclusions on, on the origins of this illiberal turn we're, we're living through or witnessing now? Well, I mean, I've said it a few times there. So it, it's a bit of a legacy, you know, there are historical roots. There's a long delay story to this. So this is also part of the story of 89. It just happens because politics is contingency. Um, so that's one. Then secondly, I would say it's not necessarily a permanent situation. Um, I mean, let me, there are three things that I've very, when it comes to Poland, very much like repeating in the last years as a historian and, and as sort of criticism in what you would find in the media and political competition. First of all, Poland is not hungry. Secondly, uh, unity in Polish politics. Wait, wait, what does that mean? Poland is not hungry. Right. Because, you know, you have, you know, that a lot of media likes playing with models. So there's urbanization. So, you know, it, 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 the illiberal term, the illiberal democracy was kind of coined by Viktor Orban in Hungary. So, and then peace comes to power in Poland. So they're following in the path of Hungary, you know, somewhat throwing Putinization, I mean, those kinds of things. No, this is not. It, it, it's a very different, much more weaker and uh, very much dependent on contingency setup. So it's not necessarily sure that they, they will keep power uh, even with the next election. Uh, secondly, uh, unity in Polish politics never lasts. That's also one of the, I mean, when you had this huge movement in the 80s and you saw how quickly that fell apart even in, in actually the people fighting each other now to the death politically are people who all have the roots in the anti-communist opposition. But they're supposed, some of them are as if they're still fighting communism, they're fighting each other. Um, so the infighting, whatever, this is already happening. So again, we can, and, and thirdly, I mean, you know, Poland has just this tradition of grassroots opposition. So you had a lot of protests, some successful. Order. The biggest problem right now is that the party political opposition is more or less I mean, they just can't get their act together. And let's say the ruling party, in a way, doesn't have anybody to lose to, but this could change. So, um, and it also, I mean, they could also just, you know, collapse in, in, in their vote tally in an election. But uh, so my main legacy is like, look, it's all fluid. It's only 30 years. And let me return back to this French Revolution assessment, you know, depending on in the next century after the French Revolution, you would think, well, we're living through the revolution or we're living through the reaction. It's the same right now. I mean, that's my opinion as a historian. So That was Tom Jones. Tom Jones is assistant professor at the Institute of Political Studies of the Polish Academy of Sciences. He holds a PhD from KU Leuven in Belgium. And as a postdoctoral researcher, he has held fellowships in Poland, Austria, Hungary, Finland, Germany, Bulgaria, and Italy. 
He's the author of Student Politics in Communist Poland, Generations of Consent and Dissent, published by Roman and Littlefield in 2015. Okay, so we just heard this interview with Tom. Um, and I mean, admittedly, I know probably close to nothing about Poland. I mean, very, very little, certainly not uh, this period in, in depth. Um, I, I found it incredibly fascinating interview, but just to kind of start, you know, talking about some things, uh, why don't you start with, start for us, Margaret? What'd you think? Well, I really, I really appreciated the interview. I also know, I know very little about Polish culture, so it was pretty eye-opening and like, it was interesting how I realized, uh, how little I think about Polish politics so it's nice to just like have it at the forefront of my mind um one of the points that stood out to me was whenever he brought up how like the European Union is more unified than ever he was general his perspective in general was very optimistic which I really appreciated um and I I see what he was I really another point that I hadn't thought about before the unification of the European Union today, because like 10 years ago, I feel like the worldview and like uh, the European Union's narrative was the dominant global narrative. And I think today that feels like maybe it's less so the case, like there seems to be more room for discrepancy with the rise of populism. And uh, June's mentioned how Poland is not the only place that's going through this political transition. And there are like a lot of different countries coming from different directions. He mentioned Hungary having different, they all have different like cultural and historical contexts. So like lots of ways to skin a cat. Um, skinny a cat seems like it's like back on the table again. And June's was kind of saying that he doesn't want people to look at populism as like a facet of Polish identity, that all politics have, uh, all countries have ebbs and flows in their politics. And this is just like a trend for the last 30 years. But in the grand scheme of things, 30 years isn't that long. Well, I think I think a couple of things. First off is um, the time issue and, and the, the periodization. And, and I, I agree with you, Margaret. Ten years ago, you know, really before 2008, let's say, I think 2008 was the first hit um, with the economic crisis and, and Greece in particular, you know, the European Union, it was almost like this end of history thing. It's kind of like there is only expansion. And, and if you remember in 2008 was the first, you know, push to really start maybe integrating Ukraine or integrating Georgia. And of course, we all know the Russian response to that. We're still living with that. But after 2008, the European Union... And that, and the, the the result of that transition from the nineteen the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe and the transition into the nineteen nineties, it that end of history idea began to experience crisis, both in terms of economics, and then as we see in places like Poland and Hungary, it seems to me, in terms of the tension between being a nation state with a national identity. Uh, and with being a member of a supranational institutional organization. Tom has a point in the interview where he's telling this really interesting thing about this bottom-up transformation of the EU where all of these people are moving, you know, checks in Spain and, you know, mobility, et cetera, et cetera. But that causes a lot of anxiety 
for a place like Poland, which for all intents and purposes, doesn't have a long history of independence. Um, so I can see why like the nationalist right begins to get more currency in a place like Poland, because the question of what does it mean to be Polish within a larger EU, I think comes up, particularly after the crises of the EU. This is kind of how I would interpret your comments. And this, this tension, this tension couldn't be more explicit with what we just witnessed uh, on the border between Poland and Belarus, right? So like Poland, uh, yeah, like basically built a wired border uh, and like refused to let Syrian refugees in instead of like, say, we would assume what the government in, you know, would do would like provide a humanitarian corridor of sorts or something, right? So yeah, these issues have really come to the fore in recent years. Yeah, and to also bring it back to like the 1980s, one of the things that I just thought of, Tom says at one point, um, you know, before the communist regime collapsed or was overthrown, depending on what you think, what unified all of these various groups and factions and political ideologies in Poland was opposition to the communist state. And then after it collapses, then you get fracturing. And that fracturing, of course, is one of the contests of that fracturing is to figure out, okay, so what is, you know, Poland? What is the future of Poland? And so I think the, the exuberance of the EU subliminated that conversation, at least for us outsiders. I'm not speaking for within Poland, but for outsiders who are just taken with the idea that, oh, the EU is only, the only march forward is the EU. Um, we didn't see or didn't really want to notice the cracks that are forming in places like Poland or in Hungary and, and other places. You can say Britain, France too, all of the pushback to the European Union. <clears throat> what about you, Rusana? What are, what are some thoughts you had about the interview? Yeah, I think for me, the, the most uh, fascinating part of the, of the interview was the conversation about anti-communism, because we're so used to thinking about anti-communism as liberalism in, in, you know, in Eastern, when it comes to Eastern Europe, Central Asia, maybe, uh, I mean, perhaps even Russia. And so the idea that, like, yeah, that, that there was a diverse group of political actors that were only unified by this goal of throwing away Soviet-style socialism was, uh, yeah, was new to me. Or, I mean, uh, it's great to see that there is research being done to complicate the picture that I guess, like, most people who are not in academia would have about you know the 1980s and like what those what that anti-communist activism actually meant right and so uh i think uh tom's research provides a new um more nuanced explanatory model for like the rise of conservatism in Poland. And another thing about liberalism too, what I found fascinating is that usually we think, oh, liberalism, both 
you know, cultural liberalism, when you're pro, uh, you know, abortion, you're pro um, other individual freedoms, and you're pro market economy, right? So it's both kind of political and economic liberalism, which is not the case in Poland, right? He's saying that they were for capitalism economy, <laughs> but they were against abortions and other personal freedoms. So uh, that's just, yeah, that's just something to think about when we use certain concepts like liberalism, they might not mean the same thing in different contexts. Yeah, it really is a, it really is a reminder that these things have to be localized. Um, and, and this speaks to some of my takeaways and that is, first off, I just, I, I always re I appreciate rethinking standard narratives you know, and, and the, the experience of the 1980s and the collapse of the communist systems in Eastern Europe, and to some extent, even the Soviet Union, we, there are standard narratives that have existed since that were formed really early on in that utopian moment of the early 1990s. Um, and, and now taking the perspective, a historical perspective and thinking about them and thinking about, well, there's other things going on than we originally wanted to see or saw. Um, I, I always appreciate that, but it also speaks to the other thing. And that is when these, when, with these events, we have a tendency as they're unfolding to see what we want to see in them. And I think the the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe is a perfect example of this, you know, outside observers, people who were coming foreigners who were coming to say Poland and writing about the process of collapse, or even in the Soviet union and writing they they wanted to see this as a, prog a inherently progressive, historically progressive, teleological unfolding of events, and it's only with you know hindsight that we're now able to step back and say, oh wait, maybe what we saw wasn't what was really going on in its full complexity, and I think I think Tom is addressing that, and finally. I like the fact that thinking about the experience in Eastern Europe in the 1980s in a more global context, and he pointed this out in two, for, with two examples. First is the, the turn away from welfare state, socialism, state social, whatever you want to call it, towards more free market, more ne neoliberalism. And you see this, you know, in Eastern Europe, you see this, of course, in Russia in the 1990s. And of course, Reagan and Thatcher are spearheading this move in the United States and in Britain in the early 80s. So it's part of this real, this economic trend towards a more neoliberal economic model as the natural, you know, return of, of capitalism in many respects. And the collapse of communism only reaffirmed the naturalness of that capitalist system. Secondly is the religiosity, which is another fascinating thing in that the Catholicism in Poland comes in the context of a, a, a rise of evangelicalism in the United States. The Iranian revolution in, in 1979 is part of this religious, this religious trend that we see, a return of religion um, is also a fascinating thing that I think, um, you know, I really appreciate if you think about the global context. So those are some of my takeaways from the interview uh, that, I, that really struck me.
is it a return from religion? Like were the Polish, did they ever stop being Catholic? I thought that was like a... No, I, I think it's the politicization of religion. The, 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 the move of religion more and more into politics. And the three examples I gave, the United States, Iran, and Poland, you see a similar trend where politics and religion are more and more you know, intertwined. And, and the collapse of a, a kind of, I mean, not the collapse, but the secularism is moving more towards, it's being challenged. I should say, in the political sphere. And that seems like it goes in line with the uh, downturn or at least uh, reduction of power of the EU and the narratives of the EU. Like this need for traditional values to be reinfused into politics. And I wonder, how is it working? I mean, I feel like the direction that populism is going to take in Poland is going to be, or just their political system is, is entirely dependent on like whether it's working or not. Do you guys know? I'm not in any <laughs> position to evaluate. <laughs> yeah, I'm not either. But I appreciated your earlier comment, Sean, when you said um, when you talked about uh, you know the writing of history and how our perspectives change over time. I think it's a great lesson in methodology. Um, you know, the revision, the revisions that Tom is making to the dominant narrative, I think, you know, speak to a more like general trend that at, like history is never an exercise in abstract. It's always motivated by present needs and present aspirations and hope for the future. And as those change, so does our interpretation of the past. So I think that is all. <laughs> That's great that he's doing that work. Yeah, yeah. And, and also it's a reminder of the fact that it, particularly in 1989, the first, you know, people often say journalism is the first draft of history. And in a lot of the first, you know, evaluations of what was happening in 1989 were coming from journalists for the most part, you know, rightly so. They're there, they're writing. But it's also really important to remember it's the first draft. And, and to your comment, there's a second and a third and a fourth. <laughs> it's, never, it's never, you know, the debate on interpretation is never over and nor should it be. So... Uh, for us, for you historians out there, <laughs> <laughs> not you political scientists, you historians. <laughs> so. Well, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and, and, and uh, of course, I'm joined by Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. And, you know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you like this podcast, please share it on social media. Tell your friends to listen. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the SRB Podcast website and let us know what you think. And another thing, you heard this in the middle of this episode, uh, a testimonial from a listener, Joe Weisberg, who was interviewed a month or two ago. And I would love for listeners to send in audio testimonies or even questions. If you have a question, record yourself asking the question and maybe we can try answering it in the podcast. Um, so record something short. 
it's really easy to do. Just grab your smartphone and record something using your smartphone. And you can email it to info at srbpodcast.org. And I'll repeat, info at srbpodcast.org. And, you know, we'll use it, even if it's negative. Um, and you don't have to be serious. Make it funny. Wherever you, maybe wherever you listen to the SRB podcast, let us know. And of course, as always, we'd like to have your financial support. The SRB podcast is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and it relies on the support of individuals and other institutions to keep it completely free to listeners without any advertisements. And I should say, I haven't said this before. I got an email about, I didn't tell you guys this. I got an email about a month or two ago, somebody wanting to advertise and uh, because the podcast actually is, its audience puts it into a, a, a small percentage of, of podcasts with a substantial audience. And they wanted to give me like 500 bucks to do an ad. And I was like, I'm not interested in this. So the reason why I'm not interested is because of your support. And I want to keep, you know, part of the mission is to keep this completely free and open to anyone. So to do that, we need your support and help. And also, of course, you know, let's be honest here, Rusana and Margaret got to get paid. <laughs> so, so that's another thing. So, well, until next week, see you. Bye.